2: I'm Brian Lehrer. This is my daily politics podcast. It's Monday, October 17. In some places, early voting in the midterm elections has already begun. One big example, Georgia, where that controversial voting law, seen by many as a voter suppression law, is now in effect and where control of the U.S. Senate may be decided in the Raphael Warnock-Herschel Walker race. Early voting begins today in Georgia. So if you're listening in Georgia today, or if you just care about Georgia, a lot of hands are going up now, happy election day to you. And so this is a good day to begin a very special stretch of our 30 issues in 30 days election series. During the summer, we did a week-long call-in series for people of different generations. We got calls from a 15-year-old, all the way up to a 100-year-old on the different days with you telling us what the most important midterm elections issues are to you. And overwhelmingly, across all age groups, the number one issue you cited was democracy in peril. So we decided to devote a full third of our 30 issues election series this year to preserving our democracy, democracy in peril. Now, obviously, the main reason so many of you cited democracy in peril is because of Donald Trump's big lie about the presidential election being stolen from him in 2020 and how that led to the January 6th insurrection and to so many Republican candidates running this year who would politicize vote counting and election certification, among other things. So we decided that we would begin this stretch with this question. When is election fraud actually a problem And when is claiming it a fraud in itself? We ask because voter fraud does exist for real, sometimes, though the number of election outcomes it changes in this country is vanishingly rare. But I've learned through covering The Big Lie that there are some really interesting and legitimate election security experts out there who gauge the potential for actual election fraud and try to advise officials and the public on how to prevent it. We will meet one of those people in this segment, Will Adler from the Center for Democracy and Technology. But before we bring him on, I I thought I would replay a few clips from the January 6th committee hearings. I've watched every minute of every hearing. And I think that one of the things they've done really well that hasn't gotten that much attention afterwards, because it wasn't very sensational, was to play clips of Trump appointees going into specific detail about some of the main big lie conspiracy theories to explain why they were false. So I'm going to play four examples of that to establish some things first about what voter fraud was not in the 2020 election. You all probably know that Trump's attorney general at the time, William Barr, called the stolen election claim BS. He used the whole word on tape for the January 6th committee. So that made headlines. But I was also really interested in how he debunked specific election fraud claims. So for example, here's one the committee played from last week's presentation. They made the point that Barr debunked the claim and then Trump continued to use it anyway. So we'll hear both. William Barr first.
0: I went into this and would
1: you know, tell them how crazy some of these allegations were, and how ridiculous some of
0: them were. Uh, and I'm talking about some of the ones like, you know, more votes, more absentee votes were cast in Pennsylvania than there were absentee
1: ballots requests. You know, stuff like that it was just easy to blow up. There was never, there was never an indication of interest in what the actual facts were. There were more votes than there were voters. Think of that. You had more votes than you had voters. That's an easy one to figure.
2: And spy the thousands. So there's one example. More votes than voters in Pennsylvania. Not. Here's another from Barr, and then Trump using it anyway. This is about the voting machines manufactured by the company Dominion that the conspiracy theorists said were rigged for Biden. bar first. The very I specifically
1: next raised the Dominion voting machines, which I found to be among the most uh, disturbing allegations. Disturbing in the sense that I saw absolutely zero basis for the allegations. I told them that it was that it was uh, crazy stuff, and they were wasting their time on that. And uh, it was doing a great grave disservice to the country.
2: We have a company That's very suspect. Its name is Dominion. With the turn of a dial or the change of a chip, you can press a button for Trump and the vote goes to Biden. What kind of a system is this? Not William Barr and Donald Trump. Now, not as well known as Barr, but very important at the time after the 2020 election was Trump's assistant attorney general, Richard Donahue is his name, also a Trump appointee and trusted by William Barr. He was Barr's deputy attorney general. Back in June, the committee played a recording of Donahue debunking specific election fraud claims from the Big Lie playbook, different ones than we just heard from William Barr debunking. Here is Donahue um, setting up first that he spoke to Trump about these things being false, then giving an example.
0: So then i talked about a little bit about the pennsylvania truck driver this is another allegation that had come up and uh this claim was by a truck driver who believed perhaps honestly that he had transported an entire tri- uh, tractor trailer truck full of ballots from new york to pennsylvania and this was again out there in the public in and discussed and I essentially said, look, we looked at that allegation. We looked at both ends, both the people who load the truck and the people who unload the truck. um, And that that allegation was not supported by the evidence.
2: And here's one more of Richard Donahue describing that he debunked directly to Trump another election fraud falsehood.
0: I tried to, again, put this in perspective and to try to put it in very clear terms to the president. And I said something to the effect of, sir, we've done dozens of investigations, hundreds of interviews. The major allegations are not supported by the evidence developed. We've looked at Georgia, Pennsylvania, Michigan, Nevada. We're doing our job. Much of the info you're getting is false. And then I went into, for instance, this thing from Michigan, this report about 68% error rate. Reality is it was only 0.0063% error rate, less than one in 15,000.
2: So there are four examples of what election fraud is not in this country, or at least was not in the 2020 presidential election from Trump's top two Justice Department appointees. So the biggest kind of election fraud we have in this country right now seems to be false claims of election fraud to try to subvert democracy. Now let's take a broader look. Joining us now is Will Adler, Senior Technologist for Elections and Democracy with a think tank known as the Center for Democracy and Technology. He previously was a tech aide to Senator Elizabeth Warren and the Princeton Gerrymandering Project, which works on the cause of fair redistricting. Will, great to have you on the show and on our series, 30 Issues in 30 Days. Welcome to WNYC. Thank you so much for
1: having me, Brian. Uh, I'm glad you're devoting so much time to this topic and that your listeners are so interested in it.
2: And before we get to what kinds of election fraud are real, let's discuss these claims that are fake. Did any of those examples from William Barr or Richard Donahue stand out to you or make you want to say something about them in terms of how voter fraud has not been happening in this country?
1: I mean, it's just so hard to respond to these specific claims because they are just so disconnected from reality. Um, You know, some of these claims, if you trace them back, you can ultimately find something like, you know, there was some uh, case on election night where unofficial unofficial results were uh, reported improperly or something like that, something that was properly fixed that ultimately became the seed for these really outlandish claims that every uh, Dominion voting system machine is rigged or something like that. But, you know, many of them are just are just complete fiction, just made up out of whole cloth. And somehow they made their way up to the president or his allies. They started repeating them and they just took on a life of their own. And uh, it's really permeated our political
2: discourse. I see you were on a panel your center put on called The Big Lies, Long Tail. How do you see the fraudulent claims of election fraud threatening democracy today and in the future, even though Trump didn't get away with them and managed to stay in office?
1: Yeah. So in that event, we covered a, a couple different ways that the, the big lie has these sort of downstream ongoing effects on our democracy. Um, and, you know, a, a big one is uh, how it's affected races to races for secretary of state and for governor in a variety of states. So this is the, the big thing that I, I think is probably most concerning, which is, you know, American democracy has this very strange feature where our elections are administered in most cases by partisan elected officials. So, um, partisan elected secretaries of state or governors who, uh, appoint the secretary of state, um, this is a a really unique American thing because we just we have so many elected off offices in this country. Uh, no other country, to my knowledge, has partisan elected officials in the way that we do. Um, and in an article tracking the number of candidates who have repeated the big lie in in New York Times last week, uh, a journalist wrote that talking about how the 2020 election was questionable has become, uh, and I quote, the price of entry to the Republican ticket. So you see these claims being being repeated by candidates who are hoping to administer elections in the future. And some of these might win. um, And then they're going to be in a in a pretty serious position of power uh, to uh, run elections in ways that they think might, you know, address the big lie as the way that they construe it, which may or may not be false. um, And, you know, have have control on how the election is run and certified. So I find that very worrisome.
2: Listeners, we can take some calls for William Adler of the Center for Democracy and Technology here on the first of 10 straight days on Democracy in Peril in our 30 Issues election series. Who has a question about election fraud that could be real and election claims like Trump's big lie that are election fraud in their own right? 212-433-WNYC, 212 433 Nine six nine two, or tweet at Brian Lehrer. We'll watch our Twitter feed go by and pluck good questions for there from there for William Adler. Um, you've also written about post-election audits of ballots that were cast. There was that case of a so-called independent election audit that we've talked about on this show, a private group that was commissioned by Republicans in Arizona, and that Trump was talking up a group that did some kind of audit of the presidential vote in Arizona, and they actually wound up, spoiler alert, reaffirming that Biden won in that state, which hasn't stopped Trump's false claims. But you didn't like that audit anyway, I see. So what's an election audit, and what was good or bad about the Arizona one? Sure.
1: So, you know, you started, you opened this by talking about fraud and, But one question is when we're talking about fraud, what are we really talking about? Right. We're talking about wanting to have trust that our elections are well run and that we can trust the outcome. And that's what post-election audits are intended to do. So post-election audits are intended to say, OK, here's the um, here's the outcome that we got after tabulating the ballots in a particular way. Let's just go back and double check and make sure everything looks good. And we know the right way to do these post-election audits. And one of the best ways to do that that we know is called a risk limiting audit, where you hand count a sample of ballots uh, from a race. So depending on uh, how big the margin is, you might actually only need to sample a pretty small number of ballots to get a really, really high degree of confidence that the outcome was correct. Uh, If the margin is smaller, then you might need to count more ballots, potentially leading all the way up to a full hand count of the results. And this is a way to generate really, really strong public, transparent evidence that the outcome was correct, or, you know, if something actually went wrong, to find that out and try to figure out exactly what went wrong. So post-election audits are just this incredibly important way to build confidence in our elections, and we need to do them more often, and we need to do them better. The Cyber Ninjas audit that you're referring to was uh, took place in Maricopa County, Arizona. Um, it was in twenty twenty one. It was initiated by the uh, Arizona, the leader of the Arizona Senate, who contracted with this firm, Cyber Ninjas, who had previously had no experience at all auditing elections. Um, They were the Arizona Senate subpoenaed Maricopa County to give over all two million ballots. Uh, cast in Maricopa County, Arizona, which is, by the way, the most populous county in Arizona, Um, all of the voting machines, all of the logs, all of the passwords, and handed it over to this firm who really had no experience with this at all. Uh, it cost taxpayers millions of dollars, uh, millions of dollars to run the audit itself and to replace the machinery afterwards, because there was no way to know that it hadn't been tampered with in a way that would corrupt future elections. Um, and the end result was really just to, it, it was to generate disinformation. Uh, it was sort of, it was a, a sham uh, and it, it damaged equipment and it, it cost taxpayers a lot of money. So. And it was really was not transparent at all. And one of the most important features of a post-election audit is that it's transparent. It generates this sort of public incident, uh, evidence that the, the the election was proper. So this was really a, a sham of a post-election audit. But what we need to do is we need to expand the use of really good, really comprehensive post-election audits around the country.
2: But another thing that has happened since the 2020 election that compromises election security also comes from the big lie, big lie camp. I think people may be less familiar with this. Politico reported last month that authorities in several key swing states, including Pennsylvania, Arizona, and Michigan, have scrambled to replace election equipment after pro-Trump officials compromised their security. They also give an example in this Politico article from Colorado, though it wasn't a swing state in 2020, where a grand jury this year indicted a Republican candidate for secretary of state and of course Secretary of State is the office that oversees elections, indicted for conspiracy to breach the security of her county's voting machines. So what's with these election equipment breaches? William, are you familiar with these?
1: I am, yeah, and I'm glad you brought those up. I mean, I really see these breaches as sort of continuous um, and part of the same phenomenon as the uh, fraudulent audit in Uh, Maricopa County, we saw some in Pennsylvania as well, Um, I really see these as continuous because they're, they kind of, they're, they're run, I mean, for one thing, they're often the same people, so some of the same people who, uh, uh, you know, the guy who, who ran the firm Cyber Ninjas in Maricopa County, he was also involved in, in one of these election equipment breaches that wasn't reported on for, until 18 months later. You know, they're also sort of, you know, ostensibly to their supporters, they're aimed at trying to, you know, uncover evidence that the election was somehow stolen. Um, The difference between these breaches that you talked about and the audit uh, in Maricopa County is that the Maricopa County review had the semblance of transparency. It it at least pretended to be a post-election audit. But these breaches that we're still just learning new details about now, particularly in, in Georgia, um... You know, they're not even pretending to be transparent. They're just, um, you know, potential potentially county-level officials authorizing people who have no experience with election equipment to come in, copy the machines, and, you know, who knows what they do with that. Um, and that's extremely concerning and is potentially a risk to election security, not just in the jurisdiction where that happens, but any jurisdiction using those same uh, machines.
2: So one more area that's contentious, and I just touched on it, Uh, in a sidelight way. Voter ID. Republicans seem to push various kinds of voter ID laws. Democrats claim it's to suppress the votes of legitimate voters who tend to vote Democratic, like poorer people who tend to be people of color and older people, who are all less likely to have driver's licenses and other forms of ID these laws require. What's your take on the good, the bad, the ugly of voter ID laws?
1: So I would say that any time you change a voting law, particularly if you're doing it in a way that is going to make it harder for some people to vote, you better have a good reason. You better have a, an actual problem that you're trying to promote uh, a solution to. But you know, like we've we've addressed a few times on this show already, um, the idea that individuals are committing voter fraud um, is, and that's swinging outcomes of elections, is just an absolute fiction. So voter ID presents prevents a very, very particular kind of fraud known as impersonation fraud, which is you show up to the polling place and you say that you are uh, who you are not and you you sign for that person. That just doesn't happen. So the scale at which that actually occurs, compare that to the scale of how many people would be affected in many states that ha- are passing voter ID laws is just, um, the, the contrast is really, really stark. So there are actually a lot of people who don't have um, a photographic ID that would enable them to vote. Um, A lot of poor people, um, a lot of elderly people just uh, don't have a license. And there's no, you know, if you're going to ask people to go to the DMV or to get, um, you know, a state issued photographic ID for purposes of voting, you know, voting is such a marginal decision for many voters that in many cases, you know, it's just not going to happen. So you're really disenfranchising people for, for no good
2: reason at all. And that is 30 issues in 30 days for today. We continue our series of segments on Democracy in Peril. This was the first of 10. We'll continue on every show this week and next week. We'll continue it tomorrow by exploring how to maximize people's opportunity to vote at all. So we thank for today, William Adler. Uh, senior technologist with the Center for Democracy uh, for Technology Uh, which 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 order is it again I forgot the The Center Center for for... Democracy and
1: Technology
2: thank you so much for joining us this was extremely informative
1: thank you Brian it was a pleasure
2: Brian Lehrer a daily politics podcast is an excerpt from my live daily radio show the Brian Lehrer show on WNYC radio 10 a.m. to noon Eastern Time if you want to listen live at WNYC.org. Thanks for listening today. Talk to you next time.